Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9 and extending to verse 11. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, as we hear that word read in your presence as your people, we come now attentive to understand it. We would ask that you would be mindful that we are but dust. And our tendency as weak and fallible human beings is to be distracted and otherwise focused rather than to be centered and directed according to your word. We would ask that you would know this about us and that you would in great measure pour out your Holy Spirit who would arrest our attention towards this word and that he would speak to us by the power of your word, living words that would take root in our hearts and in our lives. That this word would not return void, but that it would be sent, as it were, on an errand into each of our hearts, and that it would bear the fruit in which you intend to bear for the glory of Christ. Father, as I pray that prayer, I pray that you would even listen most earnestly to what you know to be the needs within our hearts both individually and corporately as a congregation. Better than any prayer I can pray, listen, Lord, to your own heart for us. And to turn this prayer and its request into the specifics of what it is that you know we need as your people. Father, we cry out for your mercy. And we ask you now in the midst of this service to come and show your face to us through this, the glorious living word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, come and wield it in our midst, both for our conviction and for our comfort. And with surgical precision, remove from us that which needs to be taken out. And with your strength, bring healing that we might become the people you've called us to be. Father, we love you. We rejoice now in this word. Come and speak to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was a joy last week, starting in this series with all of you, this series that we've entitled Life in the Family of God. A nine-week look at 13 verses, a series of commands given to us in the imperative section of the book of Romans. We said last week that we we gather the Apostle Paul is predictable. 
He starts all of his letters teaching us about the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving to us what scholars like to call the indicatives of the letters, the truth. And he paints it high and he paints it glorious for us so that we'd be captured by its glory and we'd begin to rejoice in what it is that Christ has done. And then he pivots about halfway through his letters and he asks essentially this question, in light of what Christ has done for you, how then should you live? In light of what Christ has done for you, how then should you live? And there's usually a therefore or a so. And he begins to unpack from that place instructions in how we should live the Christian life. Now, that's the section we're in as we begin in this series in uh, Romans chapter 12. We're in that imperative section. You'll look back at the very opening verse of Romans chapter 12, and you see that therefore. And he begins in that verse 1 telling us that we should live lives of a living sacrifice that would be acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And he's now unpacking for us what it means to live a life that's a living sacrifice acceptable to God. And he gets meddlesome. He gets meddlesome. He goes directly into the places that are often weak, difficult spots for us, the chinks in the armor. And he begins to show us that these are the places in which Christ can strengthen us and display his love. And he wants to paint for us a portrait of what real love really looks like. Now, when I start saying the word love, there's about as many definitions or thoughts about that word love as there are people in this room right now. Love has been a notoriously difficult word to define, and in its definitions, even harder to really wrap our heads around. And part of the reasons for that is we've got so many competing definitions for what love really is in the 21st century. And what I'd like to tell to you this morning as we approach Romans chapter 12 is the definition of love that's really being unpacked for us over these next nine weeks together as we spend time in Romans 12, 9 to 21. This definition of love is an acquired taste. It's not the kind of definition of love that is a sweet sentimentality that Hollywood would have you think. It's a biblical love that's meaty and substantial and that has sharp edges to it. And it's this kind of love that loves us into and accordance with the best interests that God has in mind for us. And that's different than we like to think. Now, when I say acquired taste, I have a story that pops into my mind. In fact, I was thinking about it um, just this week as I was having a conversation with with one of our members. There was a Sunday morning where we were gathered here. The word had been preached. We were coming towards the Lord's Supper. And that morning, as you see the little cards that are associated with the wine, uh, the grape juice and the wine cards got switched. Some of our children who came through quite early in the service, found a rude awakening at the Lord's Supper that day and did not have, as some of us have in this room, an acquired taste for that other substance, not grape juice, known as wine. And it reminds me of the acquired taste that I have gained over the years for that wonderful holy beverage known as coffee. 
I remember drinking it for the very first time with my dad. You know, he's a man. I want to be a man. So I'm going to drink coffee because men drink coffee. And so I ask him, I'm probably four, five, six, somewhere in that range, pours me a cup of coffee, intentionally no cream, no sugar. He wants me to have it straight. And so I take a swig and I try, you know, I'm, I'm poised to like it because this is what men drink. And so I'm going to be a man. And so I'm poised to like it. And I take a sip and I'm just contorting, you know, face in all these varieties of ways. And I'm going to try to muscle it down because this is what men drink. Now I will tell you this morning, I had two cups of delicious coffee. It was unbelievable. It was nothing like when I was four or five years old. Strangely enough, coffee apparently has changed in taste over the years. No, what's really happened is I've become acquired or conditioned to like something that I didn't once like. Now, what that actually teaches us is about the nature of the human heart. And really what Paul in some ways is after here in Romans chapter 12 is he's acquiring for us a biblical taste for what is genuine love. And it's different than the syrupy, soft, way too much sugar vision of love that we tend to carry around popularly in our minds and hearts in the 21st century. And so as we look at this love, this genuineness of love, as it's described there in verse 9, I want you to see that what Paul is doing in all of these commands is unpacking for us a broad vision of the depth of biblical love. In fact, that first command, let love be genuine, which we looked at in some detail last week together, that first command is the banner command that hangs over all of the other commands that are going to run through this whole section. In many ways, we're never going to be beyond the command, let love be genuine, because what he's doing in the rest of these commands is he's showing us what genuine love looks like. And it's these other commands, fleshing it out, giving us a feel for, an experience of, and a call into the nature of that genuine love. John Stott said it well in the opening paragraphs of his commentary as regards Romans chapter 12. He says, each imperative following let love be genuine adds a fresh ingredient to the apostle's recipe for love. I love the visual that Stott gives us. If you're going to make a dish of genuine love, you're going to need all of the essential ingredients that make the dish of love what it is supposed to be. Each of the commands is a dash of this and a dash of that. It's a part of the recipe of what it means to experience genuine love. And the goal of genuine love, as he looks at it here for us in Romans 12, is that we as a community of faith would begin to experience this distinctive mark of what it means to be a Christian. And that is, as Jesus would tell us, and as John will tell us later, we will be known by our love. We will be known by our love. And so the question I want sitting on your heart this morning, even as we approach this text, is how, is how are we, how are you individually, how are we as a church doing with this quality, this distinctive quality of love? Are we expressing it with the biblical depth and richness that Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 12? Or must we grow into the acquired taste? of what is the nature of this love that we might indeed consume it and then in consuming it, give it back out to those 
who are around us. I want to look at four essential ingredients, four essential ingredients this morning in this genuineness of love. And I'm lumping together a number of these commands under these four ingredients, but I think that you'll see they hang together. The first ingredient of genuine love, as described here in verse 9, is moral love. Genuine love is moral love, meaning to say genuine love has an ethic at its center. It has a morality at its heart. Uh, Paul says it this way, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. If you're going to love genuinely, as the body of Christ is called to do, that is, love that is without hypocrisy, as we looked at last week, a love that is real, a love that is true, that is sincere, if you're going to love in that way, you're going to have to do so with a moral center, and that moral center is summarized in the language of you've got to abhor what is evil, and you've got to hold fast to what is good. Now, I want to make just a couple of observations Because I think these observations are so important for where we live in the 21st century here in North America. I want you to see that he tells us that good and evil are not products of our individual choices. Good and evil is not a product of my opinion or of my particular belief or of something that I've chosen. He doesn't say, whatever it is you choose to call good is good. Whatever it is you reject or hate, that will be evil. Notice what he says. He says, abhor what is evil and cling to or hold fast to what is good. You see what he's saying? He's saying these realities are stayed. They are universal. They have been set in place and are woven into the fabric of the universe. And it is your responsibility to acknowledge that which is evil and to acknowledge that which is good and live in submission and in accord with it. Now, the reason that's so important is it's the difference between believing that good and evil are subjective realities, what I choose, what I want. You know, it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Or I can love however I want and whoever I want in the way that I want to love them. Or my preferences, my desires, no matter how they infringe upon certain ethics, are ultimately defined by me. They're defined how I choose them. Or they're collectively constructed socially, culturally, civilly, where we come up with certain laws about the things that we don't like and we call that evil. And then we come up with certain laws about the things we do like, and we call that good. And so that's good and evil. But but it could be changed in a different culture. It could be changed with a different person. You see how subjective that is? It's moving. It's mushy. It's like a wax nose. You can push it however you want to. It's not what Paul says here. Paul says, abhor what is evil. It is evil, whether you identify it as evil or not. It doesn't need you To describe it as evil, God says it is evil. He has established it has an objective stayed reality. Now the reason that's important is it tells us that there's a will above our will. 
There's a reality that we don't define, but that we have to live in accord with that God has defined, that he has set in place. Now, Paul made this clear earlier in Romans chapter 12. We didn't look at this, so it's important that we note it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he actually says these words. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. That is changed. Let us be changed. How? Through the renewal of our mind. By testing, we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is good? What is good? The will of God is good. That's what is good. What is the will of God? His holy scripture. What he has given to us. His instruction. This is his will. This is, this is his binding document that he has given to us. It holds together and defines all of reality. It is ultimate reality. It speaks into what is ultimate reality. Now that's really important because he's saying the will of God is what is good. And that means by implication, those things which are not according to the will of God or don't measure up to the will of God are not good. They are evil. And he says our responsibility is very first to acknowledge what is evil according to what God says is evil. And to acknowledge what is good according to what God says is good. Now, by saying it this way, I acknowledge I simply put myself right in the crucible of what is a cultural firestorm over morality. This is right at the crux. Who gets to say good is good? And who gets to say evil is evil? You see, it's always a question of who gets to. Authority. It always gets to question is who is authority? If you are king of your life, then you get to say. Or if you are king of the world, then you get to say. The authority gets to say. But if you're not king of your life, and you're not king of this world, and by the way, you're not, God is, then he gets to say. And he has said. He has made his will clear to us in the word of God about what is good and what is evil. Now, it's really important that Christians are solid, that we're solid on this point. You can disagree. Perfectly acceptable. I had a conversation this week with someone very astute on these particular things. We dialogued about the intersubjectivity nature of objective truth and objective truth in its relationship to the person. There's a lot of complexity here. At the surface, what the text is actually teaching us is that there is a reality that you can reject but you cannot assail. You can say for a while, I will live this way, but there will come a day in which that reality will fall upon you. You can bend it, it will not break. In the end, if we do not conform to the reality of the standards of the Lord, it breaks us. That's the nature of the Scripture's teaching. And so, it raises a big problem for us that we're going to need to figure out through the course of this text. And that is, we've all fallen short of this absolute standard. We'll return to that. But the text is teaching us this reality is critical if we're going to love each other well. Now, here's what's interesting. Is that he is not simply asking you to acknowledge that there's a standard. 
He didn't say objectively or analytically evaluate and go, yep, that's good and that's evil. What does he say? Abhor evil. Cling to that which is good. The nature of these imperative verbs is that God is not simply saying recognize. He's saying, here's how I want you to respond to these things. Here's how I want to, go here with me, here's how I want you to feel about these things. I don't want you to just acknowledge, yeah, that's bad. I want you to hate it. I'm not calling you into outward conformity. I'm calling you into internal transformation. I'm interested not merely in superficial or external obedience. I'm interested in the renewal of the mind that brings forth transformation, Romans 12 too. I'm interested in the internal operations of your heart. Well, we know that something is wrong and we all experience it when we see something that we have done that is evil and we really don't feel that bad about it. It doesn't bother us. Ever had that experience? Be honest. We all have. We've made alliances with certain sins, certain things that grieve God's heart, certain terrible things that are affront to His holiness. But we do them and we don't really feel necessarily that bad about it. That's a problem with regards to our conscience. Our brokenness runs deep. Not only do we, beat, we do bad things, we often don't feel bad about the bad things we do which actually gets to the really core of the issue. What God is calling us here is to pray for and to pursue not merely objective knowledge about what is good and evil, but a right heart response to that which is evil and to that which is good. He wants us to hate the things that are evil, and he wants us to be drawn, cling to the things which are good. The word therefore, cling is actually used by the Apostle Paul to describe sexual relations in 1 Corinthians 6. He means to describe, create a very close relationship with that which is good. As it were, unify yourself with that which is good. Now, Jonathan Edwards does this such a great service in his book, Thoughts on Religious Affections, which I know some of you in this room have engaged, because what it is that he's taught us, and this is really important, so let's listen up on this one. He has taught us that morality, and if we want to change, if you're interested in changing as a person, and that's kind of core to what it means to be a Christian, if you're interested in changing, as Paul calls us, from one degree of glory to the next, the issue is not going to be an exercise of your will, raw willpower. It's not going to be an analytical thought that you evaluate. It's going to be the orientation of your desires and your motivations, it's going to be a change at the center of who you are that's going to bring about the momentum for change. See, we all right now know many things that we ought not do, but we still do them. The problem is not education. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is we want to do those things. The wants have to change. The affections of the heart, the desires have to change. This sense of clinging to, by giving us actually a sexual or marital reference to it, he's saying, I want good to be attractive to you. I want it to be beautiful to you. Because you will move towards that which is beautiful. You will move towards and change towards that which draws you. 
And if you abhor that which is evil, literally your stomach churns, it's disgusting to you, what will you do? You'll run away from it. He's not calling upon you simply to think your way into change or to just exert a will. He's calling upon your desires to be drawn, which is a fundamental difference with regards to change. And so if this were to happen in the life of our congregation, if we were to be a people who are to love each other genuinely, we've got to be a people who at the heart level, at the center of our beings, become people who abhor what is evil and, and love what is good. Now, here, here's what begins to happen if this takes place within the context of our church. It means that we begin to love people not just how they want to be loved or how they define love, but we love people according to the will of God. We love people according to the will of God, that which is actually good for them actually good for them. We love them according to the best interests defined by the Bible. We love them according to the will of God. If we are abhorring what is evil, we are clinging to what is good, and our currency of communication and communion around the love of Christ is on those things, you know what begins to happen when we become that community? We become a community that helps each other abhor evil and stay away from it. And we become a community that helps each other cling to good and move towards it. Rather than getting with, you ever been with this person? Where it's like, hey, you were on the road to righteousness. The Lord was moving in your heart and you met with them and they just like drew you down, right? We call this peer pressure when we were 16, right? But it functions the same when we're 60, we get with that other person or we're with that community and all of a sudden their morals, their values, the things that they're drawn to begin to pull us right a certain direction. We want to be a community that's always pulling towards the good and stirring up abhorrence towards the evil that we might grow in the renewal of the mind and the transformation and become more like Christ. That's what we want to be. Does that make sense? That is genuine love according to Paul. So, so what that means is, if that's genuine love, relating to each other in that way, addressing each other's sins is part and parcel of a loving church community. Affirming each other in the work of God towards his call is the warp and wolf of what it is that we are to be as a community. All of a sudden, the call to love takes on more substance. And we begin to see that genuine love is not merely a sweet, felt moment of embrace, but it is a significant momentum in moving towards the right direction. All right. Genuine love is a moral love. Secondly, genuine love is a family love. Now, if that felt like kind of the hard edge, this will feel a little softer. All right. Genuine love is family love. Look at, look at verse 10. Look at how he describes it. Love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, you, you, probably, you, you probably know that there are more than just one Greek word for, for love. Some of you are probably readers of C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, and you're aware of those 
four Greek words that are associated with love. You see, the English language is not that complex. We just have one word for love. Like, I love hamburgers and I love my wife. Now, I hope those loves are different. I hope one is much higher than the other one and may have a different shade than the other one. Now, I mean, but we just say love. We just use it kind of as a, as a general catch-all term. In the Greek, that wasn't the case. There was philia, which was a love for friends. There's a certain kind of love. It took on a certain character. And then there was, uh, there was eros, which is marital love or a sexual union that took on a different expression. Uh, and then there was this love, the love that Paul uses here. It's the only time he actually uses this Greek word, storge. It's the love that's between family members. It's the love between family members. It's, it's the kind of love that a, that a mother has for a son or a daughter has for a father. Or a brother has for a sister, or a, or a, a cousin has for a cousin, or a nephew for an uncle, or it has that kind of, of love to it. It's a particular type of love. It's a love that's like of blood kinship. Now, if you look at all the loves of your life, you don't, you don't love your wife the same way you love your friend, and you don't love your mother the same way you love your wife. The loves take on different characters and qualities that are appropriate to them. And in fact, blending those loves in some ways in terms of their character and expression is a kind of moral corruption. So we, we want to be careful as to what kind of love we're talking about. Notice the love that we are to have for one another is not in the context of eros. The love that we are to have for one another is not in the context of philia. This is so assuring. You don't all have to be friends. You, you don't. Now, you'll have friends within the body of Christ, but not everybody's going to be your friend within the church. Sometimes we have exorbitant expectations on each other. That everybody's going to be like my best friend in the body of Christ. And that, that is not an expectation that one should hold within the context of Scripture. Scripture doesn't promise that. What it does say is this is going to be a lot like a family. A lot like a family, which there is a tight tender, endearing, and often dysfunctional affection. <laughs> That's within the context of a family. It's not perfect, but it's sincere. It's real. It, it has certain mores and traditions and customs. We take care of each other. We gather with each other. We, we tell each other the stories of our lives. We let each other in in some ways as the Bible speaks of the church and uses this metaphor of family uh, and body very often with regards to the church. It's calling us into a, a, kind of, a kind of intimacy with each other that's akin to blood, relative. Because we are family. You know, she is really not just metaphorical. It is by blood that we are united, you understand. A spiritual blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the DNA that unites us together in the body of Christ. In fact, many of us would never be in the same room if it weren't for Christ. That's the nature of family. You didn't choose your family. You know that all too well. You got chosen to be with those people. And given certain circumstances, you might not have ever chosen them. In the nature of the body of Christ, God has done a very similar thing by drawing us together into fellowship to experience this storge, 
this tender affection, this commitment for one another. The question being arisen in this genuine love and the affection that we're to have for one another is, do you have that tender affection for the body of Christ? Is it there? Or, or are these essentially kind of strangers that you put up with for about an hour and a half on Sunday? And you go about your merry way. How is it that you view the body of Christ? Is this your family? Are the people around you your brothers and sisters and your fathers and mothers? And are you, are you grandfathers and grandmothers in here? Are you related in that way? Are you, or is your perspective of each other that we have been united around the kinship of the blood of Jesus? This is what unites us. Uh, one evidence that you're actually growing in your affection for the body of Christ is you miss not being with God's people. I'm astonished far too often about how distant and margined we are with regards to our relations in the body of Christ. We can go forever, it seems, without really being in relationship with anyone and then swoop back in because maybe it's more like an event than a family. But the Bible calls it a family. That the love that we are to have for one another is a tender affection. There's something deep that is there. Now, how, how might we pursue this? Well, let's move on. How might we pursue this? I think Paul helps us in the next command. The third thing that we see genuine love is, is it's honorable. Genuine love is honorable love. Verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I think one of the best ways, if you want to grow in tender affection in the body of Christ, and really to say, these people are my brothers and sisters. We're together in this. One of the best ways in which that to happen is to begin to show honor to one another. To begin to show honor to one another. Now, what does it mean to show honor? Well, it means any number of things, but a few of the things that it means is that we are deferential towards one another. We are deferential towards one another. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2 as he appeals to, to Jesus. We are those who set others as more important than ourselves. We, we don't come relating to each other in competitive ways, seeking to measure up with one another. We, we come actually seeking to lift each other up. How often do we relate in the body of Christ by trying to assert that we're further along than most of those around us and thus create a competition rather than push up those around us to say, look at what God is doing in the midst of their life. How often have we turned it on our heads with regards to the nature of how tender affection and genuine love is shown in the, in the body of Christ? When we're showing deference or affirmation to others, we're doing things like, I see the Lord at work in you in this way, and I rejoice in it. I praise the Lord for the gifts in which he has given to you. I take a step back in order that you may shine and that the work of the Lord might be shown in your midst. I, I want to just... Well, we'll take a straw poll for just a second. How many of you feel more discouraged and less close to people who affirm you? No one? Exactly. It could be that your tender affection and lack of intimacy within the body of Christ as a family comes from the fact that we've not practiced faithfully honoring each other. 
honoring each other. Now, we had a sharp edge earlier, loving each other according to the will of God, correcting each other, confronting each other. That's there. We're not leaving that behind. But that won't have its effect of genuine love unless we're already in the process of regularly honoring each other, both before the Lord and before one another. So we've said genuine love is a moral love. Genuine love is a love where it is that we sacrifice for the care of others. Genuine love is an honorable love. But thirdly, we see genuine love is a servant love. This is what we see finally. Notice verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Now this is actually the title of, of today's message in large part because I do think there is a bit of a run that the Apostle Paul is making up to this point. There is an actionable that's required in genuine love to serve the Lord. You know, right now, you know what we call this? We call this a worship service. Sometimes it's lost on us about the fact that we are... We're actually here to serve. Who is it that we're here to serve? We're here to serve the Lord. We're here to serve God. So sometimes if it seems strange to you that worship feels like servanthood, it's because it is servanthood. It's a practice of servanthood. It is work. It is service to be in the presence of the Lord. It's joyous work. It's glorious work. But it is work. There's exertion. It takes effort. To be able to give to the Lord the worship that is due to his name. He calls us here into service to the Lord. But it's not just simply service on Sunday. It's that in everything we do, we are seeking to serve the Lord. And so he tells us this service or this sacrifice is part of what we are called to as par for the course in true genuine love. If we're expecting to receive love in the body of Christ, affirmation, honor, to, to grow in our abhorrence of evil and to increase in our clinging to the good, we can never do it without the work of service. How many of you would just like to be really close to the church and feel so apart and just not have to do anything? Yeah, that's the sinful side of you and me. We would, we would want to have all of the accoutrements, all the benefits, and none of the... Sacrifice, but don't you realize that there's no part of your life and any sphere of the existence of your life where those two don't have to come together. And the same is true in the body of Christ. But notice how he tells us not just what we need to do, but how we need to do it. He's constantly getting at our hearts. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Or do not be lazy with regards to your earnestness, with regards to your zeal, but be fervent in spirit. It's not a word we use very much, that language of fervent. But you can almost hear the word fever within the context of the word fervent. And it has this idea of raising the heat uh, level. It literally means to simmer or to boil, to be, to be simmering in spirit. We sometimes will use language colloquially, especially in the 20th and 21st century. Are you on fire for the Lord? Right? There is truth in that statement. Is there a fervency? Is there a boiling 
that's happening in the context of your spirit. So notice again what it is that Paul is telling us. He doesn't merely want raw external service. He wants a fervency of spirit in the nature of your service. Now this is what I always find, whether we're going back to abhorring what is evil and every starts appealing to the heart, I'm in trouble. Because how many times do I serve and I'm not fervent in spirit? Or I feel very strongly fervent in spirit, I don't do anything with it. And I don't serve. I almost always find that one half of the coin probably needs to be repented of. In the context of doing good things. Either I'm doing things externally without any heart, or I've got a heart, I feel certain things, but I'm not manifesting it genuinely with regards to obedience. And there's almost always something that is lacking. For some Christians, that feels very defeating. But let me tell you, that's the very heart of the message that Paul is calling us to here in Romans chapter 12. Listen, it is never going to be the perfection of your love. It is never going to be the perfection of your love. You're never going to get to a place where you have hit the rising plateau into the horizon of the celestial city, and things will just simply skate you to the front gate. That is not what the Christian life looks like. It looks like a life of continual acknowledgement that you have fallen short of the things in which you've been commanded, and even in the moments where you have stumbled into obedience. That's sometimes how it feels. You've actually done something right. You'll notice that in your heart, you're doing it from all kinds of twisted reasons. And it shows us over and over the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? That's the important part of Romans chapter 12, verse 9. This is so burdensome, isn't it? When you begin to think about having to do all of these things and hold your jaw right when you're serving, and, and you could get really nervous about getting all of this stuff done right if you don't first realize that the Lord Jesus Christ has done it all on your behalf. Do you see, you're never ready to do what God commands you to do until you know that Christ has done all that is needed for acceptance before the Father's face. Do you see, only He has abhorred evil perfectly. And only He has clung to good perfectly. He's the only one that ever could. You know, only He has loved other people with brotherly affection. Only he has outdone everyone else in showing honor. Only he has served with a ferventness of spirit. Only he has done all of that. Only he has accomplished that. But in his done, he calls to us. And he says, now that the yoke and the burden of the law is off your shoulders, that you don't have to obey me in order to earn standing with me. I love you. You have honor with me. I have given you a position. You already have affection from me. You're a part of my family. You already have been clothed in the goodness of the righteousness of Christ. All that is true of you. Already the credentials of fervency of spirit and service have been gifted to you. You don't have to achieve them. All of it's yours in Christ Jesus. Because that monkey is off the back, go do these things. Out of the overflow of my grace and the energy that the Spirit is working within you. See how radically different that is. You you should have been experiencing in some level a heaviness. Anytime we look at commands, there is something of the heaviness that's there. But then as you begin to look at the commands through the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ, you begin to understand why David would say, I love your law. 
It is my meditation day and night. It is sweeter to me than honey. Sweeter than the honeycomb. Maybe you've wondered, how is it that David could say, I love your law? Do you see, when you begin to read, outdo one another in showing honor, and you realize all the honor that you've received in Christ, and the fact that that do has nothing to do with your record or standing with God, but has everything to do with his love for you, that he's calling you into being who it is that he wants you to be, and he's designed you to be, all of a sudden you realize that his law is his love. His law is his grace. He's given it to you because he wants you to experience the fullness of the joy that you've been designed for. And all of a sudden you can read those laws with a lightness, with a skip in your step. And you begin to realize this is what I was made for. Brothers and sisters, that's what genuine love begins to look like in Romans chapter 12. And listen, if these things were beginning to take place in the body of Christ here at Cornerstone, can you imagine? Can you imagine if we were a community where God was increasing our abhorrence to evil and more and more we were stirring up one another to cling tenaciously to good? Can you imagine if we were working hard to just honor each other? To bless each other and love each other according to the will of God. Can you imagine if a gift of the fervency of the Spirit was given and we came together with self-forgetfulness looking into each other's eyes just seeking to serve the Lord for the glory of Christ? Can you imagine what would happen? I tell you what would happen. The watching world would look in and they would see something that the world knows nothing of and they would say, only a work of God is an explanation for that. For they will be known by their love, Jesus said. They will be known by their love. How are we known? What's our reputation? The question that this text is drawing us into is, have we been so transformed by the love of Christ that we simply slosh out with love all week long? on each other in a watching world. And that love becomes its own witness to the power of the gospel. Friends, that's what we're pursuing. And by God's grace, he will grant it. Father in heaven, we ask for you to grant it. In fact, Lord, we ask that you would give this gift in such a great measure that there would be absolutely zero way to explain the change that has happened within this body except that the radical transforming love of the gospel has gotten a hold of us. And Lord, as I pray that for us, I pray it for the fellow churches all around us. As the gospel goes forth this morning from our sister congregations all over Middle Tennessee and in other denominations that love you and are serving you and are committed to your scriptures, Lord, as that is the case, Lord, raise up a spirit, a spirit of revival, a spirit of renewal, and the transformation that comes when our minds and hearts and feelings and will are shot through with your love. Father, would you give a fervency of spirit in service to the Lord That the world cannot snuff out on Monday morning. And it's not an energy that is drummed up from conjuring willpower. Or from flighty emotions that burn out by the time that we step outside the back of the chapel. 
but an earnestness that is unmistakably you and you alone. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Build this house, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.